Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. All right. Good. You could be seated. Oh. Here we go. I can feel it already. You're a great bunch of people. So good to be here in RV Bay. If you'd like, if you'd like, like to follow along an actual Bible, Romans chapter five. I'm going to get there in a second. And um, as, as Pastor Ross said, uh, all of our stuff's available at the back there: CDs, DVDs, USBs, direct download. The profit goes to our justice projects uh, to help mentally handicapped children in China. Uh, with three orphanages there. We have a, a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, things like that. The only thing I would ask of you tonight is if you know that you're not going to get anything, God bless you. I can't wait to see you next year. I love you. If you know before I leave, I'm going to pick something up. If you could do me a favor and if you could buy first and chat second, that would be awesome. <laughs> the reason is is because i got to pack all that up and take it to Bundaberg tomorrow because I start there tomorrow. And so, um, so our, our order tonight is buy and then chat, right? So that's, that's what we're going to do tonight. If you could just do that for me, I'd love to have all that done in the first 15 minutes or so afterwards uh, to be able to pack all that stuff up. All right, so anytime I preach, I want a few things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller, right? The theological terms for that is I want Jesus to be glorified. I'd want the cross to be magnified. I want the resurrection to stay central. And I want you to, I want you to when I leave town, I want you to sit with your three or four friends and I want you to get your Bibles out and talk about it. I want you to ask questions like, I wonder what we're missing here. I wonder what better questions we could ask. This is what we're, we're trying to invoke. You'll, you'll never get to the end of it, and so um, the first time I'm in a place, um, and you guys have been such awesome people, um, I, I try to stick with things like Jesus, love, forgiveness, what it means to be a community of love, which is what we talked about last night. We're going to be people who open our shblacknas. Um, so try to stick with these kinds of topics, the cross. So tonight I want to talk to you about the cross. I want to talk to you about why the cross was so progressive. I want to talk to you about why it was almost scandalous, why it was unheard of. Um, I, want to, I want to bring some light to the cross that maybe you've never seen before. And if you have seen it, I hope you enjoy it again. But if you haven't, I hope it makes the cross even bigger than you thought. This is an observation that Paul makes in trying to put language around something as revolutionary as the cross. And here's what he says. He says, but God demonstrated he loved us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for Christ died for the ungodly. This is, this is revolutionary stuff. It, it just, just historically, this is the first record of any religion in the history of the world up to that time where a God did all the work and invited you to join in. Every other religion in the history of the world was you go to certain places with certain people at certain times and you do certain rituals and then maybe God would shine light down on you. But you come to him on his terms. Christianity turned all of that on its head and said, no, 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 no. What the cross showed us was that God made the first move towards us. You didn't make the first move towards God. God made the first move towards you. This was revolutionary in the history of the world. That, had ne that thought had never been had. 
And so to understand just how big the cross was, because the problem with the cross is that we talk about it so much, the familiar, Dallas Willard says it this way, that the familiar runs the risk of becoming unfamiliar, and the unfamiliar becomes at the risk of being familiar. In other words, if you, if, if you hear something so much that when you hear it again, you shut off because you think, all right, know everything about it, it can become what should be, what should be familiar becomes unfamiliar, and, and what is familiar then loses some of its uh, emotional gusto. If you could think about this and not be moved inside, I would suggest it has become too familiar. So I want to reframe it. And, and to understand this, I want to I look at the history behind the cross. I want to look at where we came up to the cross and why this was so revolutionary. To understand this, we have to understand that, that Shane Willard loves the Bible, okay? I've given my life to communicating it and to speaking about it. I love it. And, and, but I hate it when people ruin it. And the, the only way, the, there's one way you can really ruin the Bible, and that is to speak of it in static terms, the Bible is not a static record of what God is. That's crazy. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of what people thought God was that was leading up to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. It's very important to understand that God never changed, ever. But what did change was people's perception of him. And what you see in the Bible is this whole picture of, well, at this point they thought this, but then at this point they thought this, and then at this point they thought this. And the revelation of God kept getting better and better and better and better and better and better and better until the final revelation of God in the risen Christ when the whole world just went, ah, oh, okay, now we get what they've been on about. This is, let, let, let me explain it in as simple terms as possible. In the scriptures, what you see is that God was getting closer and that God was getting nicer. Now, did God ever change? No, what changed was people's understanding of where God was got closer, not further away, and it got nicer. As he got closer, in other words, the closer, the more they got to know God, the nicer they realized he is. And so as long, God never changed, but what did change was their consciousness. Let me explain what I mean. Now, social scientists have told me that, that you're going to forget 97% of everything I say by Monday. That's highly depressing to me because I've worked hard on this. But they say that I could get you to remember more stuff if I get you to repeat things. And then if I get you to do motions with it, we can even increase retention, all right? So we're going to repeat some things with some gusto. And so when I ask you to repeat things tonight, we're going to do it with gusto, not insecurity or anything like that, which this church has no trouble with the gusto part. It's no trouble at all. Never had, you guys made me feel like Chris Rock up here last night. It was pretty good, right? All right? And so, and so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna repeat things with gusto. We're going to do little motions, all right? So to understand this, we have to understand that, first of all, God was getting closer. Let, let, to, to, to really get our head around this, we got to go back to Abraham. And in Abraham's day, Abraham was a, 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 a member of the society around Ur, an ancient Sumerian culture. And in Abraham's day, remember, no scriptures, no temples, no nothing like that. If you were to ask somebody, where did God live? Like, where did you go to relate with God? What they had is they had these high places. The reason is, is because they thought God lived up. Now, so for the rest of the sermon, when I say, in Abraham's day, God lived, we're going to all with gusto say, up, all right? We're going to do our thumb like that, all right? So let's practice that, all right? In Abraham's day, God lived, up. Man, this is going to be so good. You wait, right? right? You don't know where I'm going with this. Watch, you watch, you watch. Yep, in Abraham's day, God lived. Yeah, so we know from Scripture that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Was he a bad guy? No, 
the logic was is if God lives up in the sky, if you go out during the day and you look up in the sky, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? The sun. So the logic was, if God lives up in the sky, then the sun must be God. The problem with that is every single day the sun sets. And if you go out at night and you look up at the sky, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? The moon. So the logic was, was that the sun was the God of the day and the moon was the God of the night. And they thought that the sun was more powerful than any other. So the sun was the God Almighty, the God of gods. Until by observation, because you can't look straight at the sun, but you can look straight at the moon. And they started recording these odd behaviors in the moon. And here's what they noticed. The moon goes through a 28-day cycle. So every 28 days, the moon renews itself. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon, very predictably on a 28-day cycle, which led them to this observation. What else in the world operates on a 28-day cycle? Women. I can see like half the room's like, what's he talking about, Billy? Now, I, I don't know what the heck he's talking 28-day cycles, by God, I don't know what he's talking about now. No, no. All right, so, the, yeah, a woman's menstrual cycle is 28 days. If, if you hadn't figured that out, somebody over there is like, oh, that's what's I... Dude. Yeah, 28 days, right? So every 28 days, a woman's uh, female parts renew themselves for reproduction. So the logic was, was that the moon was in charge of fertility and the women's moods. How powerful is the moon? <laughs> so when the full moon's out... You better get out of the cave. <laughs> but when the new moon comes, it's going to be a good night tonight. Right? So this is how that worked. The sun was the god of the day. The moon was the god of the night. Now, if you're an ancient Sumerian farmer, what do you need to come out of the sky in order to live? rain. So the idea was if that the gods live in the sky, the gods are in charge of the rains. And so if the gods are happy, they'll give you rain. If the gods are ticked, they'll withhold the rain and you'll die. And if they're really, really, really ticked, they'll send too much rain and it'll flood and you'll get wiped off the planet or something, all right? So, but all I want you to remember right now is, is that in Abraham's day, God lived? Yeah, in Abraham's day, God lived? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do we do to please the gods of the sky? Because we need rain. We'll get to that in a second. For right now, all I want you to know is that in Abraham's day, God lived. Then hundreds of years later, a guy named Moses comes along. And Moses is like, no, God doesn't live up. That's ridiculous. God lives in a tent in the middle of camp. Because that's less ridiculous. So what we're going to do is we're going to build God a tent in the middle of camp, and we're going to tell people he lives in there, right? And, of course, his advisors were like, Moses, if anybody ever actually walks in there, they're going to realize it's like just furniture. Moses is like, well, we'll handle that. We'll just tell everybody if they walk in there, they'll die. That'll do it. Of course, there's no record of that ever happening. Of course, it was a, it was a mobile tent, so they had to set it up and tear it down everywhere they went. So what if you were in charge of setting up the Holy of Holies? Like, what happened? Like, did you, did you have to put the last stake in the ground, and then you got like a 60-second alarm? Get out of there! Beep, 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 beep. It was, a very, it was a very primitive sort of idea, but it was a big step in the right direction because in Abraham's day, God lived 
up. But in Moses' day, he lived in a tent. Yes. And we're going to do like that. All right? So let's practice that. In Abraham's day, God lived. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. Yeah, he lives in a tent in the middle of camp. And he started moving around with them. So in their mindset, he went from far up in the sky in a faraway place to, no, 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 God's right there. So God was getting closer. It was a good step in the right direction. Is that the final revelation of God? No. Is it a word from God? Yes. Is it the final word of God? No. The final word of God's the risen Christ. So, so then years later, a guy named David comes along. And David's like, no, God doesn't live in a tent. That's absurd. And it's embarrassing, quite frankly. Because when other kings come in and ask, where's our God's temple? I have to show them this tent. It's embarrassing because when I go to their nations, they have these huge temples. We need to build a temple so, so they don't think our God's so small and they can just attack us easily. we got to do this. So David starts the process of building a temple and his son finished it. But for tonight, I just want you to remember it this way. In David's day, God lived in a temple. All right, let's try that again. In David's day, God lived in a temple. All right, so let's try it from the beginning. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Most day lived in a tent. David's day lived in a temple. Yeah, and then Jesus comes along years later, and here's what the writers say about him. And the word has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the word was God, and now God has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. So in just that little span of time, you go from up to tent to temple, to the, the revelation in the Gospels is, is God, the God that lived in the temple has now put flesh on, and he's walking around teaching us how to live. So Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. And what we'll do is we'll tap our arm. That'd be good. So let's practice that. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. God. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. David's day, he lived in a temple. And Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. God is just getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Like, the, the difference in the God concept from Abraham to Jesus is huge. Up to tent, to temple, to flesh. Then, then later, a guy named Paul comes along, and the rest of the apostles, and, and they said things like this, but Paul in particular. He said, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? Wait a minute, so... From Abraham to Paul, you have this gigantic, dynamic, non-static progression of consciousness. That God lives in the sky, to God lives in a tent, to God lives in a temple, to God lives in flesh, to wait a minute, the Spirit of God is in all of us. Us. So in Paul's day, God lived in us. And we'll do our hand like that, all right? So let's practice. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Moses' day lived in a tent. David's day lives in a temple. And Jesus' day lives in flesh. By Paul's day lives in us. So what you see in Scripture is this gigantic progressive movement from God getting far away to closer. Or we could just say it this way. Up to tent, to temple, to flesh, to all of us. God is getting closer. Now, what you also find is that God is getting nicer which is very good, because if he's getting closer and meaner, that is bad. <laughs> Let's go back to Abraham. In Abraham's day, God lived. Now, what did you have to do to please God? God lived in the sky, and you needed rain. What did you do have to do to please him? 
And the answer was, let me show it to you in a motion and a noise. Okay, we're going to practice this. This is the answer. In Abraham's day, what did you have to do to please God? The answer was, yeah, I don't know. All right? All right, so let's try that with some gusto. Ready? Go. Yeah, I don't know. In Abraham's day, God lived. What did you have to do to please God? Yeah, I don't know. So when you don't know, what do you do? You make it up. And if you make it up with confidence, people believe you. So in ancient Sumerian culture, here's what they taught that their gods expected. Two things can please God and bring rain. First thing was self-mutilation. So what they would do is if they thought they had offended the gods of the sky, they would go to the local spiritual advisors or whatever, and they would say, I think I've offended the gods of the sky, and that's why it's not raining. And one of the answers to how to fix that was, well, thank you for being brave enough to say that. You can make this right by cutting yourself. Now, here's the problem. If I say you can get right with God by cutting yourself, what is the question? Well, one, what must I cut? And two, how many cuts is enough cuts? And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. In one sect of ancient Sumerian culture, they just taught them, just cut till it rained. They lived in Iraq. You mean people, their arms are falling off, right? Because here's the problem. What if I take a knife and I do 10 cuts? But the magic number is 11. You don't know. That was the first thing the gods of Samaria demanded. The second thing the gods of Samaria demanded was sacrifice. Now, once again, if I say you can get right with God by sacrificing, what's your question? What must I sacrifice? And how much of what must I sacrifice? And the answer was everybody together. I don't know. So what, what Sumerian culture started doing was they said, look, the gods cannot deny if we give our best most valuable thing, which would be our firstborns. So what Sumerian culture started doing was demanding that every family sacrifice their firstborn um, son to the gods of the sky in order to bring rain. Now, it is in that context that Genesis 12 happens. And God shows up, the living God of Israel shows up to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, hello. My name is El Shaddai. That means God Almighty. I love the grace of God with Abraham. He doesn't explain deep theology. He just says, hey, you got a bunch of gods. You got to be wondering who's in charge. That's me. Abraham essentially says, well, at least you're speaking. Now, what, what do you require of me? And remember, now in ancient Sumerian culture, it, they required mutilation and sacrifice. So El Shaddai says to Abraham, well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock. Which, let's just be frank, that's an odd command for God to tell a 90-year-old dude. For the first thing coming out of God's mouth to a 90-year-old man is pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. That is odd. <laughs> Have you ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes. His eyesight's not real good. Can you imagine that scene? Hey, Betty, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. I'm going to try to get this in one go. But... This is going to hurt a little bit. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. For us, circumcision is law and barbaric. But in that day, it was the most gracious thing ever. Why? 
Because Abraham lived in a culture with infinite cutting. God met Abraham right where he was, and he said, okay, you think you need to cut? Then let's cut. Let's do circumcision. Why is that grace? Because it limits, you can only ever circumcise yourself one time. Like, let's just be honest. If you can circumcise yourself twice, you the man. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It limited. It went from infinite cutting to one off. Now, the, the, second thing, the second thing that that culture uh, demanded was a sacrifice of the firstborn. So think about it. El Shaddai says, okay, now that you've, now that you've circumcised yourself, uh, when you have a son, I want you to sacrifice him. If you go back and read the story, what, what is unbelievable is Moses, um, Abraham does not ask why, nor does he ask how. He knows how, and he knows why, and he knows what to do. It says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why would you go to a high place? Because God lived up. Because in Abraham's day, God lived right. So he goes to this high place to sacrifice Isaac. Why? Because that's just what was done. This God is no different than the other gods other than he's being clear. Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac and God provides a ram. The historian Karen Armstrong talks about this, that this is the first time in the history of all societies, of any culture, of any civilization all over the world where a God provided a sacrifice instead of demanding one. This was unbelievably gracious. Now think about it. Abraham kills the animal instead of his kid. He comes down off the mountain with Isaac, right? He's the first person in that culture to ever do this. What would Abraham's neighbors be thinking? No, you're a heretic. Listen, get back up that mountain, bro. You're going to cause a drought on all of us. Listen, we know it's not pleasant, but our grandpappies had to do it, and their grandpappies had to do it, and everybody's grandpappies had to do it. It's what we've been taught our whole life. Moses, you get back up there and kill your kid, or you're going to cause a drought on the whole land. And Abraham's like, no, 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 no. I've got a new revelation of the kindness of God, and none of us have to kill our children anymore. We can kill animals. Listen, when you're the first person to get a revelation that you can kill animals instead of kids, is that a good move or a bad move? Don't think too hard about that. If, if you're the first person to get a revelation that you can kill animals instead of children, is that a good move or a bad move? That's a pretty good flipping move. Is that a word from God? You better believe it. Is that inspired? Yes. Is that the final word of God on the subject? No. But it was a giant leap in the right direction. Moses, Abraham says, no more killing animals, no more killing kids. Let's kill animals. The Talmud tells the rest of the story. This part's not in the Bible, but I find it amazing. Here's, here's what the Talmud says. The Talmud says that Abraham was so moved by the compassion of El Shaddai to spare Isaac that he had a room of idols that he had kept around. And what he did is he took an axe and he went in and destroyed all the gods in his room of gods except one. And he left one standing in the middle of the room and he put the axe in his hand. So the next day when Abraham's dad came into worship, he said, Abraham, what happened in here? And Abraham said, I don't know. There must have been a fight amongst the gods and that one must have won. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> so then Abraham was kicked out of Ur because his people were scared he to bring a drought on the land. Why? Because he was willing to relearn the love of God. He was willing to see God as nicer than ever before. Let's review with some gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived. Oh, how much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Now, Abraham... Is uh, meets a God named El Shaddai. That means God Almighty. So with some gusto, let's say that word. Everybody go. El Shaddai. Go again. 
El Shaddai. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Who's his God? El Shaddai. And Isaac has a, God, has a son named Jacob. Who's his God? El Shaddai. And then Jacob has 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. The 12 children have 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. Then 144 kids have 12 kids. Who's their God? El Shaddai. Now the math is getting too hard. Who's their God? El Shaddai. Another generation, there is no God but El Shaddai. 20 generations later, there is no God but El Shaddai. No other name other than El Shaddai. It's in our pamphlets, our websites, our fundamental truths. There is no God but Then Moses comes along. And Moses is a premeditated murdering fugitive. <laughs> I look this way and that, and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was, the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. <laughs> so Moses ends up out in the wilderness. And he has an encounter with God in something called the burning bush. And the burning bush says, hello, Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hang on a second. Who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? El Shaddai. Moses says, oh, hello, El Shaddai. Let me take off my shoes, right? The burning bush says, no, my name is yud heh vav -Hey. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses argues with the burning bush. And says, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. Everybody knows this. It's in our pamphlets, our websites, our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. Everybody knows that. The burning bush says, I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, yud vav they didn't know me. So, the, so God gives Moses not only a new revelation of himself, but he gives him a new name. Yud, hey, vav, hey. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, you know you can't say that word. Yud, hey, vav, hey. First of all, phonetically, it doesn't go together. It'd be like me saying, hello, my name is... <laughs> Come again? <laughs> what? Yud, hey, vav, hey. Come again? Yud, hey. It's not even a word. I know. My name is Yud, hey, vav, hey. What's it mean? It means I am what I am. Well, that clears it up, right? So follow me here. Moses goes back to the Israelite people in Egypt. And he says, hey guys, I know you've been taught your whole life that God's name is El Shaddai. But I've got a new revelation of God. And his name isn't just El Shaddai. It's also yud heh vav -Hey. How well would that have went? No way, no way, no way. A premeditated murdering fugitive comes out of the wilderness with a God's new name? Are you kidding me? There's no way we would have bought it. And they didn't either. Jewish history tells us that they didn't believe Moses' message until he parted the Red Sea and brought water out of the rock. Because that sort of lended credibility to his story. But at first, it was no, 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 no. He says, he says hey guys, I've got a new revelation of God. I've got his new name. And they're like, okay, we'll play along. What's his name? His name's yud heh vav -Hey. Come again, yud heh vav -Hey. Moses, it's not even a word. I know. He told me his name is yud Hey vav Hey. How did he tell you this, Moses, in the wilderness? Did anybody else witness this? No. How did he tell you, Moses? Talking bush. 
which leads to this observation. Moses then gets inspired to write a new law about the kindness of God. The historian Karen Armstrong says that Leviticus was the nicest book about God ever written in the history of the world up to the time it was written. Why? Because it was the first book about any God anywhere that put a limit on sacrifice and mutilation. Moses says this. He says, here's what I have to say about mutilation. Let's circumcise, but let's do it on the eighth day where no one can ever remember it. And then from that point on, I forbid you from ever putting markings on your body. Believe me, he never thought we'd still be arguing in 2017 about whether or not it's a sin to have a tattoo. This was about a culture of people who thought they might have to mark their body in order to please God. He says, no, no, no. Let's circumcise on the eighth day, and then no one will remember it, and then no more mutilation. No more mutilation to please God. We don't, we're not going to do that. And here's what we do. One sacrifice per family per year, and you can know that all your sins are wiped clean. This is progressively ridiculous. This is so awesome. It would have been called the best news ever. So let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived. Let's try that again. Abraham's day, God lived? How much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. In Moses' day, God lived in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. God's getting nicer. Wow. Then in David's day, God lives in a temple. The rules don't change. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. Then later, prophets came along, and they started getting notions that God was actually better than that. Like Micah, for instance. He said, don't worry about sacrificing. Just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Of course, they killed him for heresy, but nonetheless, this, that's what happens when you get a revelation that God's nicer than people have been taught their whole life. You get killed. Then later recognized. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 23. He said, you who stoned the prophets. In other words, the ones that you stoned yesterday, you now call prophets. Anybody that shows up with a better revelation of God, you kill them. You're fixing to kill me. Put the connection together, right? So, so Micah comes along and says, oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. L let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived. How much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In David's day, God lives in a temple. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. Then Jesus comes along. And in Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. And then Jesus made God nicer than anyone ever thought possible. Jesus, the divine embodiment of God in flesh, started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. Which leads to this question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay, by the way, when I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is? Yes. Let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. Let's try that again. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. Jesus was very offensive in his culture. It was enough to kill him. He, like there was this one time. Jesus has an encounter with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And evidently he was short because that's what the flannel graph says. And he climbs up a tree to see Jesus. 
And Jesus has a bunch of people with him, and he stops the whole crowd, and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to eat with you today. And it says that Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that he said, Hey, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, That's it. Salvation has come to this house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved that way? Oh, ho, 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 ho. No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10, no sinner's prayer. Jesus was messing with people. What was the only way for Zacchaeus to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So when your occupation forbidded you from entering the building where salvation was attained, what hope did you have? Jesus circumvented the entire oppressive system of horrendous power. And he said, no, 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 no. Did you see his heart change? Did you see his response to me? We're going to count that. Salvation has come to this house. This was an in-your-face confrontation to first century oppression. Hmm. There's this one time. It says Jesus went by a prostitute's house. Which leads to this question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? And what was going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Yeah. Prostitution. Like, Jesus was between customers. Which leads to this question. Would there be a worse place ever to run into Jesus? Imagine that. You imagine you're the guy coming out of the back room and Jesus is waiting there, right? That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? He'd be like, Oh, Jesus! Hey, man! I was just here to use the toilet. And it says that the prostitute was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say to her? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? I'll never understand Western Christians. Why... Why, why a sinner's prayer is any more spiritual than that response to Jesus, I'll never understand. But nonetheless. So she washes his feet with her hair. And he goes, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Wow. Aren't you glad? See, people say, Jesus is the only way, Shane. Jesus is the only way. Is that true? Yes, don't think about that too hard. That's obviously true, right? <laughs> You're at church. Of course Jesus is the only way. But to say Jesus is the only way... And to say my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. That's two different things. I mean, aren't you glad that's not the only way? Imagine, what about all my bald brothers in the room? Right? Like, what if, what if you met her one day, sir? And sir, what if you said, what if she said, huh, how did you meet the risen Christ? 
So I came to church in Harvey Bay at Bayside. I was invited to the front to ask Jesus in my heart, and the Holy Spirit was just moving, and I couldn't stop. So, so I came forward, and I asked Jesus in my heart. It was the best day of my life. How would you feel if she went, what? You didn't wash his feet with your hair? I mean, with, with all respect, with all respect to my bald brothers in the room, for you to wash his feet with your hair would be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down, and you'd like a, a buffer. about it what's the only way for the prostitute to be saved in the first century temple ritual who's not allowed in the who's not allowed in the temple prostitute so when your job forbidden you from entrance what hope did you have jesus circumvented the entire oppressive system he saw her heart change and he counted that as righteousness that is movement Whew. there's this one time jesus was having a really bad day and he ended up on a cross, right? That's a pretty bad day. And the guy next to him is having an equally bad day. And the guy next to him can't breathe. Nobody can breathe. It's, that's the problem with the cross. You can't breathe. So he looks at Jesus and he goes, he can only muster three words. He says, please remember me. And what does Jesus say? That's it. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Is Jesus allowed to do that? No sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10, no temple visit. What? What? What was the only way for that man to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. He'd have to get off the cross, run by the temple, find a priest to do something for free. No. And then come get back up on the cross and die. <laughs> and, and aren't you glad that Jesus wasn't some sort of semi-ghettoized evangelical? You know? Please remember me. Well, Bo, you better hurry up and pray the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2017. What's the sinner's prayer? It's this prayer they make up in, in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up. <laughs> I know it surprises a lot of people that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written. But they did. <laughs> Jesus said, that's enough. That's enough for me. That is making God nicer than anybody thought possible. To call someone saved without a sacrifice, never been heard of before. Never. There's this one time. It says, now I've preached all over the world in all denominations. And I've, no one has an answer for this. And that's okay because I love it. It says this. And neither do I. I don't have an answer for this. But it's in there, so I love it. It says that Jesus was preaching in a full house, and it says there was a paralyzed guy who couldn't get in, so his four friends took him to the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and dropped him in. That is chaotic. Look, I don't care how good of a speaker I am. Someone repels from the ceiling. It's over. <laughs> I can't even compete with a crying baby, right? It's, right, this. And then this is what it says. It says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved because someone else is believing for you? <laughs> I don't know. What do you do? What is in there? Oh, my God. You say, Shane, how far do you take that? I don't know. I don't. I urge everybody to make their own decision for Jesus. But also, if you're a mom here tonight, 
and you're believing for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff, right? Hey, a later writer named Paul said, don't you know it's the faith of a saved wife that can save her unbelieving husband? Is Paul allowed? Yeah. I was talking on this one time, and somebody afterwards said to me, what are you saying, Shane? What are you saying? Are you saying that you can go to heaven by marrying the right woman? Okay. <laughs> okay, first of all, if that's your question, you have missed my point entirely. That's first. Second, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is above my pay grade and yours. It's not my call. We're going to let God make all those calls. Who goes to heaven, who goes to hell is entirely up to God. Can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I have no idea. What I do know is if you marry the wrong one, you will live in hell today. That is a fact. You'll be praying, God, let a comet come to earth to bring. <laughs> what was the only way for that paralyzed guy to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual to get a sacrifice, right? Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. Why? They couldn't afford the temple tax. He couldn't afford forgiveness. So Jesus counts it to him based on the only act of faith he could see. That is, oh, that is in your face stuff. Uh, essentially, they had been taught their whole life one sacrifice per family per year. Here's essentially what Jesus said. Ah, God's better than that. Let's do one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. How about that? <laughs> Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived. How much do you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much do you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much do you have to sacrifice? Once. How much do you have to mutilate? Once. David's day, he lives in a temple. How much do you have to sacrifice? Once. How much do you have to mutilate? Once. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. How much do you have to sacrifice? None. How much do you have to mutilate? None. God's getting nicer. By the final revelation of God in the risen Christ, God was so unfathomably nice that they wanted to kill him. People couldn't take it. Then later, Paul says that in Paul's day, God lived in us. In Paul's day, God lived in us. Then the rest of the New Testament makes God even nicer than that. When they start explaining the cross, six different places by four different authors in the New Testament, it says that Jesus wasn't just crucified at Calvary. He was actually crucified before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says that. 1 Peter 1.20 says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, but in these last days was made manifest so you could see it. In other words, it had always been true, but you wouldn't believe it without seeing it, so he showed you. That is profound. Hebrews 4.3, and Jesus' sacrificial work was completed before the earth was made. <laughs> Um, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, your salvation was given to you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, blessed are those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter 9. Who wrote Hebrews? Everybody all together? I don't know. We have no idea who wrote Hebrews, but she was brilliant. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9, didn't you know all along, all along, 
It was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin. For don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages? The cul- I love that. The culmination of the ages. Does that sound like a Jewish theological principle? No, it sounds like a rock festival. Where'd you go last weekend? I went to the culmination of the ages. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says that sacrifices never worked because actually what's true is that God took care of everything before the foundation of the world and you wouldn't believe it without seeing it, so he showed you so you could see it. And you know what? That's the only thing that makes the cross and Christianity make any sense. If that's not true, then here's Christianity, right? If that's not true, everybody right here. I know it's a little distracting there. Right here, ready? Ready? All right. If that's not true, here's Christianity. Hey, tell me what Christianity is in one sentence uh, or one statement. Uh, God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. So when humans rebelled, he was, like, surprised, and he had to rack his God brain as to what to do. And even though he was God, his best idea was to torture and kill his only son by sending him to earth on a suicide mission. And even though his son obeyed the suicide mission, it was still horribly unsuccessful because, unfortunately, most people are going to go to hell with no hope of ever getting out, and God never gets what he wants anyway. Join us. That makes so much sense. Come on. What if the good news is better than that? What if the good news is that God created the world and because he was God, he was able to foresee human rebellion and he loved his creation enough to fix the whole broken thing before it ever started, but his beloved creation wouldn't believe it without seeing it, so he lovingly showed them what had always been true about him. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He simply showed you what God was like since before the foundation of the earth at the culmination of the ages. (laughs) <laughs> I told you I was going somewhere. In Abraham's day, God lived. How much you have to sacrifice? How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you mutilate? Once. David's day, God lives in a temple. How much you have to sacrifice? How much you have to mutilate? Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. How much you have to sacrifice? None. How much you have to mutilate? None. In Paul's day, God lives in us. And when did it all actually happen? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus was simply the physical manifestation of the fullness of God that had been true before the beginning of time. 1 John chapter 1 and we know that whatever had been true about God since before the foundation of the world we have now seen it with our own two eyes. This is the risen Christ. This is the power of the cross. The cross was not motivated by necessity. The cross was motivated by the love of God for his creation. May we, my brothers and sisters of Harvey Bay, may we, as we cheer for the Brisbane Broncos tonight, may we, I know, I know, may we, as we get up and and do whatever we do tomorrow, may we, as we go to work on Monday, may we not just be people who proclaim the forgiveness of Jesus, but may we understand the grace of God that was true since before the foundation of the world. May we live it out as vital vital representatives of his love and grace in Harvey Bay, that everything that we represent now has been true since before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages. May we be those people. Wow. Let's pray together. And that, my brothers and sisters, 
is good news. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never gotten in. You've never went all in on what Jesus done. Maybe you listen to that night and you go, man, God was always gracious. We wouldn't believe it without seeing it, so he showed us. That is amazing. I want in. And uh, you can surrender your life to Jesus tonight. If you need words to say, you can say something like this. Jesus, you know what? I'm going to make a decision tonight. I'm going to trust that your version of my life story is better than one I've written for myself. And um, I'm going to surrender to that. I'm going to trust that that's better. I pray for all of us to be more aware and have a revelation of the message of the cross. Let this place be a dwelling place for your name, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. Let that atmosphere of the Spirit of God rest on us. Give us comfort in our hearts for where our hearts condemn us. Give us an atmosphere of comfort for our community for where their hearts condemn them. May we know the message of the cross for our whole world. Amen. Amen. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your, your night in the last two days. What a great turnout for Thursday and Friday, my first time here. Uh, next time I come, let's tell some people. Get them out. I love it. I'd love this place to be standing room only. It'd be awesome. It'd be awesome. I bless you to be people who aren't just forgiven, but your community of love. I bless you to be people when you see needs, you meet the needs. I bless you to be people who live with a wide open splachna. I, 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 I bless you to be people that when you read the Bible, you do not read a static record of God. You read a dynamic, progressive revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Trust me, it'll make it better. I bless you to be people who understand that Jesus didn't inaugurate a new reality. He simply showed you what God was always like. And may you, my brothers and sisters, may you be the living embodiment example to your world of what it it looks like to be connected to a God that's been at work in all things since before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages. Until I see you next year. Grace and peace. Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.